Hi everyone, just wanted to put a little trigger warning on the beginning of this episode because we do touch upon some subjects such as suicide, sexual, and physical assault. So if any of those things can be traumatizing to you, uh, we just want to give you a warning. Here's the show. All right, everybody, welcome to this week's Learning the Tropes. I'm Erin. And I'm Clayton. And I'm your women's novel veteran. And I'm the Virgin. And we're your hosts. Hi, guys. Hi, Clayton. Hi. So we have a very special guest. This is her third time. She's like our most guesty guest. Yay! Um, (laughs) She is the author of most of your favorite romance novels, but also most recently the anthology. Most of your favorites. Uh, the anthology Naughty Brits, which is super fun. Um, so thanks so much for joining us, Sarah McLean. Yay! I'm so happy to be here. Do I get like a prize if I hit a... Is it like Saturday Night Live where I get like something? A bomber jacket uh, for like the fifth time or That's club? what we sort of joke about on Faded Mates is that like you'll get a pink lady jacket the fifth time you've been on. I mean, we say this, but Adriana Herrera is about to hit her fifth time and it's not like we have pink lady jackets like just laying around. Well, you know who has is not in the race yet for pink lady jackets is the two of us. And now that I know, I know there's a prize. Because we have never done it and we have to do it. And mm-hmm. But actually, I was thinking about you guys because we did that live app. So that counts, right? <laughs> um, we did that live episode and we should do one again if we're all stuck in quarantine forever. But right. uh, yeah, definitely. Clayton will be happy because I'm like hard at work on a book that's filled with things that he likes. <laughs> Yes. As as promised the last time I was here, there's a labyrinth in chapter one, Clayton. Whoa. That's huge. <laughs> You're starting off so big. Where do you have to go from there? That's awesome. I mean, it's my gift to you. So this came about, you being a guest on this episode, because uh, I was telling you that we were going to read all the Bridgertons, and you said... When are you doing Sir Philip with Love? Do, can I be a guest? Yeah. Basically. I mean, I, I'm i a little pushy. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think it's say, unsung, I... you guys. I think it is the mm-hmm. unsung Bridgerton book. I always say, like, Julia basically invented the cinnamon roll, right? Like, she, like, these books are all, like, happy, like, people who are delightful falling in love with other people who are delightful. Um and, like, the the conflict in them is very, like, internal and very much about, like, the heroes having to, like, soften up. But they're not, like, hard characters to begin with. They're really, like, they're decent men on the page. And prior to this, historicals didn't have, like, it wasn't, like, a wide swath of decent men roaming around in historicals prior to this. Um, you know, men had to, the heroes had to really evolve over time. And what I think Julia Mm -hmm. did and what she made, what she did so powerfully for romance and part of the reason why she's Julia Quinn is because she sort of set down this this expectation that she threw out the idea that all heroes had to be hard and, and impenetrable and then evolve. Like she sort of handed you heroes who were very decent men who maybe had, you know, issues, but didn't they weren't going to kidnap the heroine into the night. (laughs) right you know um all right so before we get to it let's judge this cover so i'm gonna share my screen i don't know which one you have i have this one yeah that's the original and then they reissued it and left it the same it's it's 
green. It's green. And kind of looks a little, like, what, foggy? Is that yeah, what it's supposed it's, to look uh, like? It's very monochromatic. Like, mm-hmm. it's all this. It is, it is monochromatic, I should say. Oh, wait. Yeah. So are you guys looking at the purple one with the letters? Or yeah, the purple one is at the-, the blue one with the quill pen. There are, this is hard for these old books. There's, I mean, there are a lot of them. The yeah. one that we had on Kindle was the latest one, which was 2000. Well, I think I think it got re-released with this cover in 2020 because it has the little sticker on it that says now a Netflix series. Mm-hmm. And it's the one with the letter, the bundle of letters. And it's purple. Is it purple? And yes. it's purple. Okay. Yeah. So the, I feel like the last time I came on here, we talked a lot about covers because I was I was sort of explaining mm-hmm. why the covers look that the, look the way they do. Yes. Um, Julia Quinn is a good example of like what happens when you become a superstar. The reason why this cover looks the way that it does, like the monochrome and the giant. I mean, monochrome is sort of I think probably. I think Julie's the, Julia is the only person I can think of who had this kind of like obviousness, but she was the Bridgertons had clearly become massive by this point. Like Julia will tell you, and she's you know she has said many times that the first three books in the Bridgerton series she sold as a trio, like you know with the idea that it would hopefully be a full family of books, but you know just like any of us sell a series, right? And so those books just like hit market and like. Who knows what what would happen? And that it didn't really become the Bridgertons until book three in the series. Um, Mm -hmm. And then this – but then it sort of took off. Um, And these books, the gigantic name in white, which, um, you know, is is foiled on mine. It's like a – it's raised. So embossed. Is that right? Embossed, (laughs) Thank you. It's embossed. <laughs> and then, like, her name way bigger than the title. And you can see this now, like, on any romance novel. Like, you pick up the – often, like, the author's name is bigger than the title when the author is somebody who you know. And that's because romance readers are like, oh, I like Julia Quinn. I'll read everything she writes. Mm. Um, and so that's what's happening with this cover. I, I mean, like, it's real monochrome. And so was the rest of the series at this point. And so for me, like, there's something interesting about it. But – I like a clinch. I also feel like uh, a lot of times they're at least in like the early 2000s, the the 90s and early 2000s, they started taking figures off covers um, to like maybe try and appeal to more readers than just romance. Right. Like it was the cartoon cover of the day sort of a thing in the early aughts. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe also like you wanted to make, I mean, I can remember there were like, Amanda Quick books or Jane Ann Krentz books where it was like her whole it just said Jane Ann Krentz like right down the whole book and then it just had the title mm-hmm. tiny in tiny font at the bottom like maybe they just needed the real estate for the name but mm-hmm. um no I like the new one I like your version better with the like the color and the letters yeah and it's just like a little letter set it's all it's still monochromatic it's still all basically purples um but I, yeah, I also like the 2017 better. Still her name massive, but in a contrasting color, I think that shows up more than to Sir Philip with love. It's it doesn't pop the way that it does on the later version. Right. So, yeah, 
I like the later version. I mean, what about you, Clayton? Yeah. I agree. I I'm, I like the later version a little bit. The color of the original is a little bit uh, seasicky to me. Mm. Like it, I, like <laughs> when I look at it, I don't. It doesn't. It's not like a comforting color. Oh, I don't have the original because in the original there was a step back. It looks like. Oh, there was. Ooh. She's wearing like a really beautiful red dress, which. But this is a good example of like. It, the way that romance was, and it was wild back then. <laughs> they, I guess, yeah. One of the things that we we miss when we do the cover thing on the Kindle is the step back. So mm-hmm. we we never are really able to judge step backs, which is kind of a shame because that is yeah. a part of the cover that kind of makes well romance unique. Yeah, I mean. I was the first, I don't know about other houses, but Brazen and the Beast was the first book that Avon ever put the step back into the ebook for. Um, mm. And that's cool. I don't actually know what the step back is in Daring and the Duke. I don't know what that, but now I can tell you that um, step backs are going to become even rarer. So in my next book, the step back will actually, what that, that clinch picture will be on the back of the physical book. Okay, wow. but um, I don't know. I don't know if people will see it. I mean, I'll keep asking to put them in. Is it just going to be your name, super big? <laughs> I don't think so. Like aggressively <laughs> like, big, oh. like wrapped around. Like you can't even see it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. big, it's just like the A and the H. <laughs> oh, that that's gonna be great. It should be like a three fold out. <laughs> that is just your name. <laughs> Hi, I'm Laura Von Holt from the Mermaid Podcast, part of the Frolic Podcast Network. The Mermaid Podcast is, you guessed it, all about mermaids. I cover everything from mermaid legend and history to mermaids in pop culture, movies, and TV. My guests include mermaid experts, mermaid historians, mermaid authors, mermaid charities, mermaid tail makers, and even professional mermaids. Yes, being a mermaid is a real job. So whether you have legs or fins, are a mermaid queen or a mermaid at heart, the Mermaid Podcast has something for you. You can find us at mermaidpodcast.com and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Clayton, what was this book about? So this book was about Philip Crane, Sir Philip Crane. He's the guy from the title. (laughs) He's a botanist. He's writing letters back and forth with Eloise Bridgerton. She decides, well, he asks her to marry him. Uh, He asks her to marry him in a letter. She decides, well, I'm 28. I got to figure something out soon. My best friend just got married, which was funny because that happened in the fourth book, which we read months ago. Because it's Aaron's favorite. Yeah. And so she's like, I need a, I need a man. This guy <laughs> seems fine. She leaves, shows up at his house. <laughs> Without telling him she's coming. <laughs> Which is my nightmare. We'll get into that. (laughs) And he didn't say he had kids, which, like, she's kind of, yeah, which 
cool move by him because why bring why bring a buzzkill I into mean, it? She's definitely not coming if she knows these two terrors exist. <laughs> I, I know. know two buzzkills. So she shows up, <laughs> and they try to make it work. Uh, you know, they they she is essentially ruined because she goes to his place and there's there's no but she doesn't have um what is that a uh, chaperone chaperone so th- her brothers come physically attack Philip <laughs> and say well you're getting married so they do and then it's all about them trying to work through their marriage him dealing with his anger. Him becoming a sort of a father? I mean, we'll get into that. But I, too, Sarah, am surprised this is your favorite. Oh, bold (laughs) fighting words from Clayton and Aaron. It is. It's my favorite. I'm just surprised. I don't, I'm not being judgmental. No, I I know why you're surprised. There are a lot of things about this that I should not enjoy. Yeah. It's very, it's a quieter book. mm Mm-hmm. Uh, there are children in it. <laughs> so, yeah, are you, you're not a fan of children in romance, no, really, right? I am Me not. Neither. No, thank you. Yeah. I have them in real life, so I don't need you them don't need- in my books. <laughs> so let's get into okay. it. What, 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 why is this your favorite of the Bridgertons? Okay, so I really like... I, I, there are a lot of things about this. The thing about this book is there are things about this that I absolutely should not enjoy. And there are also things about this that are like my catnip in books, right? Particularly in historicals. I love an epistolary novel. Like I could read, um, I wish that there were more letters like at the beginning of this book because Mm -hmm. I could just read their correspondence forever. So there's that, right? Like I'm predisposed instantly to love, any book where two people fall in love long distance with letters. Um, and so there's that. Um, but I also really like it when you take a familiar character and you remove them from the world that they know. And then for us, that's, I mean, I said, I said before we started, like, this isn't really a Bridgerton book. Right. Because the only the hallmark anytime anybody talks about Bridgerton books, it's like, oh, this big family and the mallet of death and like how funny they all are together and how they have this like great banter together as characters and like the family, the family, the family. Right. Violet is this, the like w- the greatest mother in all of romance. Right. Um, but this is Eloise on her own. And I really like it when you separate a heroine from the world and you sort of make her, you know, move forward as her own ident- in her own way like as her own person and in this in this book moving her out of the bridgertons is such a jarring experience for the readers and for Eloise that i think it really like sets her apart as a heroine like here she is having to go it alone um and I really like, I mean, like, I there's, like, a little bit Beauty and the Beast going on here. Like, she shows up at his castle, and he's, like, this, like, impenetrable, per- this impenetrable person. Um, I don't, you know, care very much about children, but I think that Julia wields them very well here, like, to show how Philip has to be broken open. And I don't know, maybe I came to it at a time when, like, I needed the, the... I think it also tackles a lot of issues that, like, 
none of the uh, most of the other Bridgerton books like don't feel so um I mean I love this series but like this book I said I actually was texting with Julia this week about it but like I feel like this is where she like levels up and she starts to really like dig into like the hard hard really hard stuff like he's a widower like there's so much and and like the way that his wife died is very dark like there's something a very dark kind of beginning to this book that feels unlike everything else in the series I like it because I like I like Julia's books where she tries I like any book where a here where a romance writer tries something completely different than what they've been doing and um like I have a lot of admiration for that yeah but also, I, I like that, that scene when they bang it out and she's like, all you want to do is have sex. And he's like, yeah, because I'm having a great time. Like, there's something so like authentic <laughs> about these two in a way that doesn't feel like anybody's trying. Like, it's just two people just working at being people. Yeah, I mean, I I, I get that uh, The when when you say it's a it's a different feel because it did to me feel a little bit like all the other, well, the books that I've read so far were in Technicolor and this one is kind of like monochrome. Yeah. It, it it feels a lot less fun in the way that, I mean, there are fun touches. Mm-hmm. There is that moment where she, her brother's around and she was like, waving her arm around and then she says oh it's just a bee mm-hmm. yeah and then anthony mm-hmm. freaks out she's like i should have said it was like a rabbit or something or, or oh and, and it was because yeah. like, it was such a macabre joke and i was like oh well that's just something that i was like oh well that's funny but funny in a really kind yeah. of macabre way i mean this book is it's like julia took the bridgertons and then she waited them and she like tried to and I don't know I don't know right because we've never talked about this this book specifically but like I feel like what she was doing here was she was like I'm gonna try I'm gonna do a thing and I I mean like I said like I admire that I admire that when anybody's like I don't know it might work it might not I'm gonna do this thing um but she took the Bridgertons and it's five books in like at this point you do have to try something else you can't just have like 25 books of like you know families bantering like what she did is she said like I'm gonna take one of them and send them out into the world and she knew she couldn't do that with Hyacinth right like Hyacinth is a different like that Hyacinth doesn't have this story frankly I also think this underscores like the brilliant characterization of the family because I don't think any of them have this story but Eloise right Eloise the like Mm -hmm. Maybe Francesca, maybe after like everything that happened. Well, Aaron, what what is your what what did you think of of this book? Yeah, well, it's funny because you know I read all the Bridgertons. I think in like quick succession uh, a while ago now, like four years ago or so, and so uh, it's funny how the memory of something is different from then when you reread it. Mm-hmm. You really discover things about the book that you really enjoy. And I agree. I think putting in something as like heavy as like postpartum depression um, and uh, suicide are, are really heavy subjects for 
us, the book we read previously was basically a take on Cinderella. And it's like a fairy tale. And it doesn't have that weight. So then to come to this book with with that, that weight of it at the beginning is just really interesting. Like you said, it is a departure. It is trying something different. And I do think Philip is just a very interesting hero because he is not necessarily likable, but not um, in other ways where we haven't connected with heroes. I feel like he, you can see him trying and you see him constantly failing yeah. um, in a way that I find really interesting and really real. And I think as I was reading the book, too, I was like, well, how much is this sort of like what parenthood was in the 1800s, which is just diff- the idea of parenthood in this class is different than what it is like now. Um, so it really made me think a lot about sort of that and what his role actually should have been in that place. Um, and then adding El- and, and sort of what his role for Eloise was, because he also brought her there basically only thinking of her as a mother for his children, that he didn't have any interest not that he didn't have any interest. He didn't trust himself to be an active father with them. Um, and also, yeah, didn't really have an interest. He's very into botany. Well, um, I mean, but he's also consumed by, like, guilt and grief, right? Like, he couldn't mm-hmm. parent them. I mean, like, he's he's deeply – I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm going to get on a little bit of, like, a let me defend Philip moment. Because, like, I yeah, yeah. think part of the reason why I love this book so much as a writer – is because and I mean but like I wasn't a writer when I read it the first time and I loved it then too but there's this sense of um what first of all okay I have a lot of things I want to say my absolute (laughs) favorite Julia Quinn book is The Secret Diaries of Miss Miranda Cheever um and the reason why and that is a book that also deals with something like incredibly intense right there's a there's a law a pregnant there's pregnancy loss in that book and it is like Mm -hmm. heavy and like intense and emotional and I feel like for me like I think Julia often is she everybody loves loves her for her dialogue and like nobody writes dialogue like Julie like Julia but um the but when she but we we do her disservice by not acknowledging that like when she handles these heavy topics she does it so deftly right and I think Philip's characterization is really beautiful in the sense that like he has failed his children in his mind. He has failed his children in the worst possible way, right? Because he couldn't make their mother happy and he couldn't save her. And like, so the idea and then there's, I mean, there's the other piece of it, which is like the sins of the father and his father was abusive and terrible. But I don't ever get the feeling that he's like that worried that he's ever, he's never going to hit his children. Like he's ne- like, he's not worried about his temper, um, in the way that like Simon worries about his temper, right, or worries mm-hmm. about like how what kind of father he'll be. I think Philip is really about um, like what Philip is worried about is not being able to live up to the expectation of parenthood because he failed it. He failed on so many levels with the most basic thing, like right. He couldn't love his wife enough. Well, he didn't love her at all because marriage in the 18 whatevers and (laughs) he couldn't save her for his children i I mean i get it it's sad it's a sad story (laughs) 
I I kind of read into, I don't know, I I did kind of read into the element of he was worried. Oh, you think? That he would get violent. Yeah, he he worries about it. But did you believe it would happen? Oh, no. Well, that's the thing. So here's the thing about this, that there's one thing to... Think about doing something, and there's another thing to actually be capable of doing it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that increasingly is hard for people to understand nowadays as opposed to back in the day, where I think people would look at Philip and the fact that he even mentions a thought of going to get a whip for his kids is tantamount to doing it i don't agree with that i feel like human beings are messed up they have histories they have urges that are not necessarily uh good or moral but the struggle of humanity is what you do with those urges do you give into those urges you know or do you recognize them and say to yourself okay I got to figure out what this is and why this is before something could happen. I never believed for a second that he would beat his kids the way he was beaten. Mm -mm. I just don't think he would. But he's so isolated and these kids seem so hard to deal with in the situation he's in with, like you said, the grief, all the things that are going on that he had no anchor so therefore, I feel like he didn't he didn't know what he was capable of. And once Eloise shows up, he comes more into his actual character and who he is. And you figure out at that point, yeah, he's never going to do. I mean, I'm sure there was a level of spanking, but we're he talking about like, them. Yeah. Which I think yeah, is. Yeah. Spanking, well, spanking happened in the 80s and 90s. There's that <laughs> moment when Eloise, when they set the tripwire. Well, first of all, I think the kids are actually really, uh, I mean, of course they are, because Julia's been writing children into the Bridgertons from the start, right? Hyacinth and Gregory are children. So, like, Mm -hmm. there's, so the children are really deftly used in this. So there's the scene, the first prank, which is the flower on the door, the bucket of flour on the doorknob. So the children are basically, like, um, sound of musicking. (laughs) <laughs> Eloise, right? Yeah. And uh, and so there's a bucket of flour on the doorknob, and they like, and it pours all over her as she's coming to dinner, and like that's embarrassing, but fine. And then she puts a fish. Eloise puts a fish in Amanda, the child, the the eight year old's bed, and like that's horrible. And then the eight year old comes running to Philip, right, to tattle essentially and say like, you have to send her away. She put a fish in my bed. And it, that whole scene is so cleverly done because the you hear he hears the scream from outside and he starts to get up and Eloise says it's fine don't worry about it like I just put a fish in her bed and she's eating soup or something and it's really terrific but also you know again every the characterization is so smart like everything's been set up for us as readers if we are Bridgerton readers to know that Eloise knows. This is war. She says it at one point, like, this is warfare I'm comfortable with, right? Like, I know exactly how to get back at these kids. But they set a tripwire for her. And she falls and she hurts herself. 
And I forget whose POV it is. It's in. I mean, I think it's in Eloise's. Uh, the POV switches back and forth in within scenes in this book. Um, so it could be anybody. But she falls and she's like cracked her eye and she's getting a black eye and he calls for a steak from the maid and like there's like a <laughs> <Yeah>. whole whatever. <laughs> and then somewhere in the text it says um, he wasn't. He didn't, his goal wasn't to punish the children. It was to keep Eloise safe, like to make sure Eloise was not hurt. And like the way that that's juxtaposed, it's like instantly as a reader, you're released from this worry that like he's a bad father. Although I feel like anytime the kids are on the page with him, at worst at the beginning, he's like absent. He's like, mm-hmm. but I do think, I mean, I'm I'm with you, Clayton. Like I just, I think, I believe that he is worried. I just... I also believe that we have, as readers, been, like, assuaged of this concern ourselves, which is not necessarily the case in a lot of other romances, where, like, the hero's so gruff that you're like, oh, maybe he would, you know, <laughs> without yeah. this yeah. woman. There, There is a bit of a undercurrent, though, of the kids reacting to being in trouble in a way that would make you think they've been hit before, but that's because... Mm. They reveal that they're being abused by their nurse, their nanny, mm-hmm. and she's hitting them with a book. And that's why they get afraid of being hit. It's not because they're afraid that their father's going to hit them. It's because they're afraid that this woman is, is going to hit them. You walk in, and this person you hired and you trusted mm-hmm. is beating your kid with a giant book. Like, how do you not – like, what do you do? I mean – and the funny thing about that is, like, I'll, he says, I'll give you 30 minutes. Yeah, she's like, <laughs> I need to minutes. get my stuff. I'd be like, no, it'll come out the window. You pick it up from exactly. the Exactly. <laughs> she's, like, packing her toiletries, you know, making sure, well, hmm, that's done. So I guess I'll just sit and have tea for the next 15 minutes. It's like, no, out now. Yeah. I think that, too, though, this is the first of, I mean, I haven't reread the Bridgerton's in a while. So, but I, if I recall correctly, this is also the first one that sort of amps up. Dra- There's this sort of underlying sense of something is wrong in this house. And mm-hmm. it takes, like, as a reader, you're, you're sort of aware of, like, something has gone wrong. And, like, what is it? You know, this book also was written long enough ago that, like, there's a, there could be some sense of, like, what did the, like, was the mother abusive? Like, was there something that, what am I missing? And then, you know, it, it all unravels. And it unravels in a really nice, like, I think a very good way where Eloise says like I don't like this woman and she can't put her finger on it and then like that impacts their relationship like I there's a lot that I like about how this feels like a grown-up book yeah I think to just go back to like Philip as a father real quick like I do think what Julia does in this book that's really interesting too is like I think especially coming from the Bridgertons where, you know, Edmund and and Violet are like the best parents there ever was. Mm -hmm. I think that there's this expectation that you have a child and then you are a parent and you are good at it. And I think that there is 
there can be a pretty steep learning curve if you have not been around children um, and if you don't know how to handle children. And obviously, I don't doubt that Philip loves his children and cares about his children. But I do think sort of what Eloise provides when she shows up is like a modeling. Mm -hmm. That's why he starts to be able to parent like in her presence, because I think he's like, oh, being able to think of like, okay, well, what would she do or how if I want to be more like how she is as a caregiver. And I think that's really interesting and important. And I think it's not talked about enough because I feel like a lot of times in romance, either you're a very bad parent or you're the best parent. And it's very rare that you see a parent just sort of be like, listen, I'm not good at this and I want to be good at it. I don't know how to bridge that gap. Right. And sort of that's what's being able to be done. So I do like Philip. My Um, favorite Philip moments parenting wise are the ones where Eloise is like, leave them to me. And he's like, will they be alive tomorrow? <laughs> like, you could sort of... Like, I feel like I have to ask. Yeah, but, like, there's this certain sense in his... Like, you can you can hear it in the, in the dialogue. Like, he's like, I'm slightly concerned for my children, like, with the way that you are committed to retaliation. You know, there's a... <laughs> I mean, he's doing the best he can at the beginning of this book. And then I think he's doing yeah. the best he can at the end of it, too. But, like, Eloise makes... Here's the thing. All romance should be, like, love should make you a better person, right? Being in love, being loved by the right person should make you better as a human. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why I love this, too, this book so much, because I think Eloise makes Philip a better person. And, you know, she doesn't have a ton of flaws as a character, so it doesn't necessarily work the other direction, but, like... I think this is, like I said, I think this is a, this is Julia doing something new. Yeah. Yeah. And Uh, first, yeah, for some reason with Philip's physicality, I keep picturing him as like a very tall, thin man. mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because he's so bookish. And then every time he's described as this like big brute, I'm like, oh man, I'm really off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's just me. The reason I was not a big Philip fan, and I am not a big Philip mm-hmm. fan, is because of a lot of the reasons that you guys were talking about. Like, this is a book about a, a guy becoming a functional father. And that is not what I look for in a romance. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't want kids in my romances. I'm not interested in that. I feel like their love story took it, it were were like was sidelined mm. because of all of this raising these kids and Eloise I feel bad for Eloise she's stuck in this situation I never believed that she fell in love with this guy because to me I didn't find a lot I I I care about Philip but I would never want to be in a relationship with Philip mm. And that might stem from a lot of those traits that he had being so internal, so that you could feel that palpable air of sadness and kind of like barely restrained anger. And that is not an atmosphere that I want to surround myself with. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be a personal thing. So I don't think that, like, 
everybody who reads this is going to have those same feelings. But that definitely resonated with me. And it, mm-hmm. it did make me feel like, okay, I know Philip's trying. I know Philip's trying to be a better person. But me personally, I couldn't be that person to try and make him better because I would only I would have a very hard time being around Philip for any extended period of time. And so reading about Philip mm. and having Eloise in that situation made me pity Eloise instead of thinking, oh, well, they're going to live happily ever after. I barely like I barely got the sense that like this is going to work. I just I just didn't feel it. I just I think that was my issue is like I couldn't be in Eloise's shoes. I felt really bad for her being stuck with this guy. <laughs> well, let's talk about Eloise. So, she is a spinster at 28. She has been writing, she just is obsessed with writing letters. Um, as someone who accidentally fell into having 19 pen pals during quarantine, I, I really <laughs> identified with that. And so, and um, and she's a spinster yeah, she, because she ex- yeah. she wants more. Like she's she's not. It's not like she hasn't been yeah, proposed she's been, to. She's, she's had a lot of offers. She turned yeah, a bunch she, down. Yeah. Yeah, she's famously turned down six offers, which I really like because you see uh, at the beginning of every chapter, it's in a letter from Eloise to different people. And so you see why she turned down each of the six she turned down. Is this the first of Julia's books that doesn't have Lady Whistledown letters in it? Right. It would be right. Right. So there, that's another thing, right? Like she has Mm -hmm. to figure out, she's like doing author work here too. Like she's trying to figure out where you go from now. I don't have the cornerstone mystery of the, of the series. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I first read Bridgerton's thinking that Eloise was Lady Whistle. Yeah, well, it makes sense, right? Because she's writing all the time. Yeah, and I thought this was an interesting way to have her say for for Julia to sort of talk about like, okay, this was what she was actually doing. It wasn't just that it was like a red herring that she did. Um, Although I feel like I read in an article somewhere that she didn't know who Lady Whistledown was, like the first few books either. Mm-hmm. Um. So and then she gets this this uh, proposal to see if they might suit that she would be able to come visit. And then her best friend marries her brother and she loses her mind a little bit and just like fucks yeah, off to lonely. Gloucestershire. She's lonely. Yeah. Because look, everybody thought Penelope. Wait. Yes. Penelope. Everyone thought she would be a spinster, right? They thought like, oh, well, she's destined for the shelf. Like she she mm-hmm. can't possibly fall in love or no one will ever love poor Penelope Featherington right and the reality is is that like Eloise I think always felt like all right well it's gonna be the two of us right spinsters till we die ride or die they're gonna golden girls themselves right through the regency and the reality is like Penelope and Colin fall in love and are very very happy like the arguably like the happiest of the Bridgerton couples the one that everybody loved um, both in the Regency and in modern day. And then mm-hmm. we, and then like she's, she's, I mean, Clayton, you're right. It's a sad book. Like it's a heavy book. And it, um, you know, Eloise is alone. And trying to figure out who Eloise is without siblings. I mean, it must be real hard to be a Bridgerton, first of all. Mm-hmm. And to be a middle Bridgerton, like 
you're not the oldest of anything. You're not the youngest of anything. You're just like smack in the middle, getting old and alone because your best friend just married your brother. Like, it all Mm -hmm. makes sense. And then she, so she like pieces out to Gloucester to meet the man in the castle. I mean, obviously them getting together was a form of desperation for both of them because he needed somebody to be a wife and be a mother to his kids because he couldn't handle it. Originally, that's his intent was, I need a body. I need another (laughs) body here. Sure. And also, your boy hadn't gotten down. He hadn't gotten jiggy for eight years. Not even with Lucy in the tavern with her big boots with the giant tits yeah (laughs) which all the brothers were like believe me he's a good guy if he didn't bang lucy (laughs) and then sophie is like oh i've heard of lucy (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so he's pent up and so there is a level of like it's not that storybook romance that you imagine in your dreams like my husband's going to be a man whose first wife killed herself. <laughs> and then he hasn't had sex for eight years. Uh. All he does is put his hands in the dirt all day and never talks to his kids. Like, <laughs> okay. a- again, it's, that's the thing. It's, it's, not, it's not your standard romance setup. No, but setup. here it is. Fundamentally, these are two people who want to be seen for what they are. Right? They want to be acknowledged for what they are. They want to be recognized for what they are. And they're not even sure what they are. And it's been a long time, right? Eloise has gone 28 years and her identity is Middle Bridgerton Girl. Right? And Spinster Middle Bridgerton Girl. And Philip has gone however long he is and his identity is like weirdo gardening wid- widower. Right. And like the neither of them have ever had an opportunity like they've and I might add talk about familial obligation like he didn't marry his first wife because he loved her. He married his first wife because his brother died. Right. Mm -hmm. He became a baronet because his brother died like he he has stepped in. He is the spare quite literally. Right. Like the heir and the spare like he has stepped into this life that was not supposed to be his. And it wasn't you know he was supposed to go off to what Cambridge and become a professor and instead he's stuck in Gloucester like being a baronet and I think um this book is about the journey that life takes you on I think it's about missed opportunity I think it's about like finding like there's something sort of faded about these two in a way that lots of other like this is a faded mate story in like a really weird way because they couldn't be happy with anyone else. I mean, maybe Eloise could have been happy with somebody else, but it's been 28 years and she's turned down six other people. So maybe she couldn't. Like, maybe she had to leave the Bridgertons to be happy. Yeah, and I think, like, fundamentally, I think every Bridgerton book is about how do you separate yourself from your family when they are the people you love the right. most in the world, but, but you she's, can't continue to exist. Right, but Eloise but is like Rob most... Kardashian. Like, he, she has to get out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. She she has the most, like, dramatic, like, I got to get out of here. Because also I think she's one of the ones that who's most entwined. Through her letter writing, through her personality, she seems to have a strong relationship with each of her seven siblings, which is difficult. In a way that I think when you read the other siblings' books, they don't, they have one or two 
of their siblings who are connected to, but it isn't the level of Eloise. Right. And that's why her also, like, leaving so quickly um, during the ball where Penelope is revealed to be Lady Whistledown, um, she... She does it specifically so that no member of her family can come with her because she needs to do this on her own so specifically. Yes. Um, but Clayton, you mentioned that Eloise showing up uh, unannounced is your uh, nightmare. <laughs> oh, yeah. I need so much forewarning. <laughs> even people I love, even like my best friends, like my greatest friends if they just showed up at my apartment without calling or texting first i would be mad you need a butler to say i'm sorry mr gumbert is not receiving yeah i'm not not receiving at the moment yeah there is something about like my time and my space and getting ready to 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 have guests for me as somebody who is like an introvert but i'm not a shy introvert i i need like my energy restored by myself and if somebody comes in without me getting the requisite like energy replenished i will be not the person i want to be and I think that that always would make me feel bad about myself. Like, there's a good example. So this morning, we, you know, we're doing this at like nine. And, uh, you know, Sarah and Aaron were talking and I came into the chat and I was just sitting there. And I know Sarah was, you mentioned, you're like, Clayton's just not saying anything. This is, blah, blah. <laughs> and it's just because like, it's early in the morning. And, and I'm I, in your I was house. Still, and you're in my house. No, but you were invited, which we're so glad to have you. I'm so glad to receive you this morning. But no, it's like I don't think I was able to switch to I'm talking and interacting sure. with people like fast enough. Like I didn't give myself enough time to be like, uh, okay, I'm going to be receiving someone and I need to be the Clayton that people like to talk to, not like the sullen guy who's just sitting there staring at his microphone. And so that's the thing. Like, I feel bad. I don't want you to feel like I did not want to do this or talk to you because this is so fun. And I love when you don't want to talk to people at 9 (laughs) a.m. But you were able to do a better job of, of, of hiding it than I am. And I think that's the thing is like, that's why when somebody will just show up at my house, I have to do this like, switch and and i'm not able to do it super fast well so here's my question the scene that happens right after eloise turns up at philip's house when they go and the when the butler's like uh would i think perhaps you'd like refreshments sir philip right and then um they go and they sit in the receiving room and they just sit and eloise is like oh my god I have to fill the silence it's excruciating this was a huge mistake I mean like and Philip is like I really should say something but I don't know what like I feel very attacked right now by this woman (laughs) (laughs) and that must have rung slightly true to you well I find the more I do this show the more I dislike a hero 
the more he's like they you. are similar to that's me. What I, yes, I've heard <laughs> you say that. <laughs> and that's why Philip being Philip is like my nightmare. <laughs> this book is a long. It's the beginning of the journey, right? Like yes, happily ever after is the promise, but it's. It re- we don't get there until the very end of this book. Like it's you, you're meant, I think, to feel like. Look, it's hard, right? I, you're meant to feel romance. the The best romances for me are the ones that feel like, how are these two going to work out? Like, how is he ever going to be worthy of her love? How is she ever going to be, you know, somebody other than a Bridgerton, right? And then, um, what? What is done in this book, and I think so definitely, and I think is done without, it's like a fishbowl, right? It's just these two idiots alone in a castle, right? Like, (laughs) there's nothing to let up. And that's the other piece of it, right? Like, it is, it's like, um, you know, like a, a piece of music where, like, you're just waiting for the beat to drop. It's just like a slow heavy build and you're like make it like just get me to the place where like these two are gonna be okay um but in other books julia had you know seven other siblings or six other siblings to figure out seven other siblings how many of them are there seven (laughs) yeah (laughs) And, and then and then violet right so like there was always somebody to bounce thoughts off of and like always doesn't have that and what happens when you take the talker and you give her like nobody she has to deal with herself i mean look this is i am not surprised that like this is not the like this is not the the Bridgerton book that people like scream about, but it is the Bridgerton book that I scream about because I think it, I think there it is very authentic. Like Clayton was saying, like he's these people are real people and they feel ordinary in some ways, which sort of makes the book extraordinary for me. Like mm-hmm. I like I've I don't write romances with like this because I can't figure out how to do it. I can't I can't figure out how to get enough gas in the engine to make it work. Um, but I think this shows why Julia is, you know, the one of the best there is for us. Um, and it's why like the Bridgertons have, have sustained for so long and are why people love them so much. It's because she can do it all. This book proves that like she has chops. With how you are describing this book and explaining it, I do respect it. And I didn't. I, I never have not enjoyed a Julia Quinn yeah. book that I've read, like a Bridgerton. I'm never not enjoying it. And even though I didn't like Philip, yeah. I still was invested in what was going to happen. What was stark to me was just that, like like I said earlier, I just never felt like the romance, yeah. the romance I wanted, which I think was like a storybook romance, mm-hmm. wasn't in this book. No. It was like too real, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> two grown-ups fall in love. It's it's yeah, really it different. Like, it's it is so different from like most of the other books that we've read, and I think I was uncomfortable with. <laughs> Have it. you guys read definitely any Mary Balo on this? Not podcast? yet. No. 
this felt when I was reading it felt for those people for listeners who you have who are you know romance readers who have read Mary like this really felt Mary Bailey to me like and mm-hmm. because it's like Mary Bailey does this too like where it's like two kind of like wounded people falling in love and that's what's happening here um but yeah I'm not surprised you were surprised that this is that this is my favorite I like to yeah. keep it interesting, you guys. Yeah, but it can't sense. all be gorilla attacks. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's such a bummer, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Lorraine Heath. I I'll come back to more Lorraine Heath. She's yeah, her but her stuff is wild in a way that like Julia Quinn stays more. No, to, but that's um, why Julia changed the reality. game. Like mm-hmm. Julia was the one who said what came before us was great but we're gonna try something new yeah what if right. a gorilla did not attack yeah what if i mean like we so last night i was on a text thread and somebody was saying that like the cw just announced yesterday that they were going to redo all of austin but just like have sex in them in them now like they were going to like put sex on the page essentially for the for a cw project and like <clears throat> austin and, and we were talking about the fact that, like, Austin endures despite the fact that, like, nothing happens in Jane Austen novels. Like, it's just people talking and it's delightful. But, like, the most that happens in Pride and Prejudice, I mean, I guess Lydia runs away. But, like, Jane gets a cold is, like, the main conflict, <laughs> external conflict of Pride and Prejudice. And, like... Julia is a modern Austin in the sense that, like, she just understands people better than a lot of the rest of us. Like, she can put gas to people who just, like, are living slightly challenging lives is enough gas in the engine for a Julia Quinn novel. And that's impossible to even conceive for a lesser author like me. (laughs) <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. But I think it's also like um, the thing about even criticizing a Julia Quinn book or criticizing one of the Bridgersons is it's still one of the best books yeah. you've read. I mean, a thousand so it's percent. Like, you're when you are comparing all of them together, it's like some are going to rise yeah. and some will fall and some will be in the middle. But even the ones that are the ones that I don't think are quite as strong, like last week we read an offer from a gentleman, which I don't think is the strongest Bridgerton, what is that? but it's still a Who is fantastic that? book. Francesca. That's Benedict. Oh, no, Benedict. OK, that's the Cinderella retelling Benedict and Sophie. Yes, yeah, she's the maid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's still a fantastic book and one of the better romances I've ever read. But when you are putting it against um, The Viscount Who Loved Me or Romancing Mr. Bridgerton or this, it just, yeah. So I'm saying I mean, we're grading on a severe curve yeah. saying that this isn't our favorite. Like, it's still a wonderful book. And, you know, but you've convinced I mean, me that the, the work that this is This is doing. the reality of, like, all all of the biggest. Like, we did a whole, a whole season on Cressley Cole, right? Like, mm-hmm. Not every book can be the best. But like when we ranked them all and we were like, are we going to rank the 18 Immortals After Dark books? Like 18 and one feels like a big spread. But they're also like some of the top probably, you know, 100 romance novels ever written. All of them. So it just doesn't, you know, it's like Lisa Kleypas too. You know, the worst book by you know, all of these writers is better than 98% of the rest of romance. So, mm-hmm. you know, 
But also I think that we as a genre do ourselves a disservice. I think we do authors a disservice when we say like, oh, well, you know, Julia did this other thing. She wrote this other series um, and it was called the Lost Duke of Wyndham series. Mm-hmm. And the first one was like maybe called the Lost Duke of Wyndham and the and the next one was like Mr. Cavendish, I presume, or. I'm I'm probably really as on brand. I'm getting these titles absolutely wrong, but the the premise it was a duet, and the premise was like one of there was it was brother half brothers or some I forget quite how it worked, but like there was a duke, and then the heir the not duke right, and one was a bastard and one was not, and then it real it became clear over the course of the first book that in actual fact. The other one was the was the legitimate heir and not so like they had to do a switcheroo, right? Like he lost his title and it and it went to the other person. And so she wrote this whole book. And then the second book was the exact same timeline, but from the other brother's perspective, right? Fat like again, really interesting work going on here. Like there are whole scenes that are the same, but told from the opposite POV. And like mm-hmm. Real, like just really fascinating. What she did was very cool. And readers, I think a lot of readers were like, well, I bought the second book and it was basically the same story just told from another perspective, which was the point. But yeah, you know, like, and for me, I think that duet is really fascinating because like, here's a romance novelist like trying something new, which is what we are told all the time that like, you will kill your career if you try something new. Like you can't just like, you write historicals, you can't just go off and write a contemporary. Like, you just can't. It's not allowed because your readers won't come with you and, like, they'll think that you'll you'll never be able to survive as a writer. And, like, nobody says that to non-genre writers. Like, nobody says to, I don't know, like, <laughs> I can't think of a single non-genre writer, but let's just <laughs> go with it. Like, no one says to Jonathan Franzen, like, oh, you can't go off and write something completely different. Um, right. Yes, but but for us, like, well, that's what we're told. And Julia, I think, like, there are there are markers in her in her like career that are so clearly her trying something completely new. And for me, those almost all of those markers are my favorites of her books because you're seeing like, as Jen, my podcast co-host, would say, like, you're seeing her try to learn how to like drive a stick in a Ferrari, like. She knows she has all the skill and she's just like trying to do a new thing. And it's very cool. But I appreciate that this is a very like specific perspective that I have as a writer. But I think that's interesting, too, because that's the only way also like the genre moves forward. Because I think if you have, you know, the best selling authors of the genre, just be like, we're just sticking to the same old, same old. It it. We never go forward then at that stage. Right. And that's, I think, the thing about romance. You know, when people, like, obviously know I do this podcast or they ask me questions about romance knowing my reader. And that's the thing I say is, like, it's constantly evolving and pushing and moving forward and trying things. And I think that only happens when you have, obviously, new authors are incredibly important yeah. to do that work. But also sort of the more established authors as well constantly pushing um, and it sort of is what brings everything forward. Yeah. And I think it's what Julia Quinn did with The Duke and I, where that was like a real moment in romance. Yes. And that was sort of a changing of the tide. Um, I mean, it's revolutionary, The Duke and I. 
It's a, it's mm-hmm. she, like I said, she's not the first person to ever write like a cinnamon roll, but like cinnamon rolls don't become a thing without Julia. I mean, it, they certainly don't become a thing when they did without Julia. She was, she changed the game. Mm-hmm. And so, and it, and it worked so well for readers. Like, Oftentimes you can point to a you can point to a book and you can say that was the book that changed the game, right? Derek Craven, right? That was the book that <laughs> Clayton, I'm singing your song. I know. Derek Craven. Um, you should come on the podcast for Derek Craven Day. That's when the two of you should come. We want both of you separately, oh, yeah. but both of you together should come for Derek Craven Day. Oh, of course. Um, anyway, so Clayton has plenty to say about Derek Craven. I mean, let's do it. It's what everything devolves to eventually. Here we are. So, but yeah. Derek Craven, right? Like Lisa put a a stake in the ground with Derek Craven. She revolutionized the genre. She created essentially the working class like historical hero. She didn't, you know, other people had done working class heroes before in historicals. I'm not saying it was the first, but like she Derek Craven was so perfectly written that like forevermore in historicals, when you write a working class hero, you are writing on the backs of Derek Craven, right? Like on the shoulders of Derek Craven. So, like, you can point to these these texts and say, like, this is and and but Derek Craven is not the series that is not the series that made Julia Qu- and that made uh, Lisa Kleypas a superstar. The Wallflowers is the series that made the, Ju- that made Lisa a superstar. But like, that's not the case with Julia. Like, Julia wrote these Bridgerton men and changed the game, and yeah. we all like owe her. For that, I mean, I think anybody who's writing a rom-com right now sort of owes Julia Quinn a little bit of gratitude for bringing bringing us along the way. Yeah, and I think you know when Bridgerton was first announced, the Netflix series, you know, I think people were kind of questioning why that series and not other book series, it's and you so know, whatever obvious that sort of hubbub. <laughs> right? But it's so obvious too because it's like if if anyone has ever tried to write a pilot, it's the hardest. And part of it is because you have to get these characters down as full people quickly. And I think the thing about Bridgerton, the series, and why I think it is so easily adaptable, is because you have these really complex, interesting, fully formed characters. So then with television or when you adapt anything, you are going to have to change the plot and you're going to have to change big things just because it's a different medium. But to have these characters so fully formed, you can then put them in a situation. You're like, I know how Benedict will act if he's in this scene. And I know how Anthony will act in this scene. Um, And that is like so helpful and so interesting that when it was announced that it was Bridgerton, I was like, well, yeah, of course it is. Like, of course, this would be the first really Mm -hmm. major romance adaptation. Hopefully not the last. I have a list, (laughs) as we all do. (laughs) But like, you know, I get why this is the one that that Shonda Rhimes or whoever sort of at Shondaland brought this project forward, why this was the one that they had they chose. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's because... Yeah, the characters. It's all character development. All of it. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's just wild. I don't I was rereading this this weekend and the whole time I was like, how does she do it? How am I turning pages? You know, I lay in my bed and I read this book in two and a half hours without stopping for and I it's the, you know, sixth or seventh time I've read this. Like 
how am I still doing it when there is like theoretically no gas in this engine? <laughs> right? But right. like she just she does it better than anyone. I mean, and there are a handful of authors who since then have like nailed this as a as a process and who can do it better than who can do it very, very well. But like it was Julia first. I mean, it was yeah. Jane Austen first. And now it's Julia. Well, I got to ask the big question. Oh, yes. Would you fuck them? I would fuck Philip for sure. I mean, you know, sad guys, they bone well. <laughs> well, he's so pent up. He would, he, he's so eager. Yeah. He's so into there fucking be, her once he starts fucking thing. her that it's the best. It, he really is. I almost feel like Julia could have gone a little, like, I wanted that to be, like, a little filthier. You know he's oh, a yeah. disgusting yeah. dirty talker. Mm-hmm. Like for yeah, and Eloise yeah. talks all the time. What she's just quiet. <laughs> no. Yeah. It, I want. I want like the. She's already done second epilogues for all these books, but like I want the third epilogue. That's like the the porno. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you're friends with her, maybe you know whenever your birthday is. <laughs> Like, I just want a few thousand words of, you know, how they get down. Yeah, could you write me some fanfic, but, like, written but from by the <laughs> <Exactly>. author? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I made you, <laughs> Julia, I made you an AO3 account. <laughs> These are the things <laughs> I'd like you to post there. <laughs> I mean, and also, Eloise sounds, like, Eloise might be my favorite Bridgerton. I really love her, and she sounds beautiful and fun, and, like, yeah, why not? So, yes and yes. I I can't with I couldn't with Philip I just couldn't too close to home too close to home uh we and also it's like when would we schedule this out like I'd be like no I'm not taking people right now he'd be like I'm not taking people right now so we would never <laughs> it would certainly not be impromptu there would be no like it, surprise spontane- now we both maybe, yeah it'd be butler tag our butlers would be talking <laughs> to each other. maybe your butlers would get it on so there you go that'd there, be cool I would would read that fic. <laughs> um but so eloise i would yeah well i mean of course she's a bridgerton i would bone all of them um all right let's do goodreads lists yes so obviously this is on 100 pages of lists and i just picked ones that i liked okay so best historical romances where the quiet unusual girl gets the guy she's not quiet quiet. and i don't think she's all that unusual So Take it off the list. Off the list. Thumbs down. <laughs> no, we don't agree. Uh, best humorous historical romances. It's not really humorous either. It feels like somebody just dumped all of the Bridgerton books on there. That's right. what it feels like. Because well, it, I, yeah. I, I think there is always humorous moments. There is a moment of like utter surprise that I had like kind of an excited utterance over when I was rereading this. So... It's the story, the backstory, all of Philip's backstory. And then he, like, comes down the stairs and Eloise is standing in the lobby, like, in the lobby, in the, like, foyer of his (laughs) castle. Castle, I don't know, whatever. And he sees her and he looks into her eyes, her, like, beautiful gray eyes, and he says, like, he could drown in them. And Philip Crane, as one might imagine, was not the kind of man to use the word drown, you know, lightly. Lightly. Yes. And I had this, like... this like horrified laugh like it was this weird moment where I was like oh that's funny and macabre as Clayton pointed out earlier 
And like, but also very, very like clever. Like there is, it is, this is Julia Quinn, just like macabre, like sort of darker. Yeah. Like, I love that line. I thought it was a great line and very funny. And it's, it's a line that shows so much because it's, it's funny in that way, but also it's showing that he can get over his shit. He can get over mm. the fact that his wife before that had the incident with water and drowned. And, well, she, you know, she died of different, but basically the drowning is what killed her. And she is now able to think differently and find love in a way that he never thought possible. Yeah. It's very yeah. clever. Yeah. Best romances with spinsters, wallflowers, or old maids. Sure. Jesus spinster. Jesus spinster. Best romantic beta heroes. Sure. I mean, I think I he's, guess he's a beta. I yeah. He's a beta. I don't love the. I don't know the whole alpha beta. Like I, I don't. I feel like that's a bit outdated, and yeah. it doesn't really make sense. Like I think there are like specific alphas. But I think this thing of trying to put every romance hero into one of these categories is like kind of difficult and I think doesn't tell you much ultimately. No, I think what people mean when they say beta is like they want they mean a a hero who's like softer and who isn't sort of domineering. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the other day I saw something on Twitter, some discussion that like, you know, in order to be like, you know, the love of alphas is is basically just a love of men who like who like can't love at all and like are you know are are bad bad people and it's like well i disagree with that fundamentally because i think like the cornerstone of any the like the essence of every romance hero every romance hero is like he loves he loves his partner and he loves like and he cares for things that are are weaker than him right like children and animals and like whatever it doesn't matter mm-hmm. emotionally where he's at. Like, I think the, I think what that, when people say beta, they mean they, like, a, a hero who is comfortable with his feelings. Yeah. But I, I mean, uh, I don't think Philip is comfortable with his feelings at all. I think Philip is no, like, no. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's the journey. That seems messy. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, plans seem to make sense. Um, I gotta make write- these pea pods big. <laughs> That'll solve everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Letter writing couples, historical romance. Yes. Yep. Gentle giants and romance. Sure. Historical romance, marriage of convenience slash arranged marriage. Not really. It no. wasn't a marriage of convenience and it wasn't arranged. But they no. ended up married because of compromisation. Right. Tortured heroes of historical romance. I don't know. Would we call him tortured? I I would say he's, he's towards tortured. tortured. I, I mean, I guess maybe he's not even in touch with his feelings enough to be tortured. <laughs> right. But I was thinking because a- his back is all messed up from his father, like, whipping oh, him. Oh, God. Yeah, I forgot about that. Sure. So yeah. physically tortured, yeah. Yeah. Compromised, exclamation point, historical <laughs> romance. Yes. <laughs> sure. It's a less fun compromise because she wasn't actually compromised. When this is the other thing, like all those Bridgerton brothers, like they didn't compromise the hell out of their wives. And I know ugh, the double standard. It's too much for me with the Bridgertons. I mean, all <laughs> so say so say all 
all romance hero brothers. But, um, yeah. I mean, like, poor Eloise, she didn't even get the compromising done to her before she had yeah, to marry. Yeah, because he, they had, like, kissed once or twice. And then he was like, I think once he realized he was going to marry her, he was like, okay, so now we're I'm going to push the gas pedal down. And he, like, brought her into Sophie's office and just went down on her and was like, yep. you're going to like this. And then she does. So it, I, that was a great scene. Yep. Loved it. <laughs> um, <laughs> odd couples, opposites attracted romance novels. Well, she's very talkative and he's pretty quiet. So I would say there is a level. But, like, again... It's not that polar opposites right. that I would put in this category. It's funny because if Bridger, if Philip had come to London instead of Eloise going to Gloucester, then I would say it probably would have been an opposites attract. But Eloise out of the Bridgerton house is not the same. Yeah. That's a good point. Brainy genius romantic heroes. I mean, is- possibly... I mean, he's is he a, a scientist. Genius? I mean, he's a bu- Yeah, I don't think all scientists are geniuses. No. <laughs> no, no. All right, so we have a hard line. No, we don't know his intelligence level. Is pl- he could be a shitty botanist for all we know. <laughs> I mean, he can't uh, even I know make a lot those of dumb scientists. <laughs> no, he's still working on it. Uh, wait, which is the... Is this one of your books? Now I can't remember, and I might embarrass myself. But what is the book where they... Make a new flower. One good earl deserves a lover. There you go. Pippa makes That's it. a genius. Pippa creates the hi- a hybrid rose. Mm-hmm. There you go. Is, she, is he a Pippa? We don't know. He, I don't think um, he's a Pippa. No. Uh, books with close siblings. Yeah, it's Bridgerton's. <laughs> no more rakes, historical romance. No more rakes. Look at that. That person hates rakes. And I agree. It. I, I mean, I, I don't agree with hating rakes. I'm very pro rake. But yes, it should be yeah. on that list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Happy, witty and fun romance novels. No, quite dark. In fact. Yeah. <laughs> Always witty, but yeah. clever. Yeah. Very clever, but maybe less than fun. Well, I always think with these lists, if somebody came to me, was like, I want like a happy, witty book. And if I gave them this, they would be like, mm. all right, <laughs> we're starting with. A suicide. I don't know. Um, and that's right. why we're so hard on these lists and these list makers is that mm-hmm. these are supposed to be for readers to find something that they want. And if these are deceptive, yeah. if these lists are not putting you in the right direction, then these lists are useless. Yep. Yeah. Romance novels with celibate and or lesser experienced heroes. I guess he's celibate. Yeah, I mean, eight years, right? So yeah. s- the thing is, I guess he had a few, one or two lovers before his wife. I think we figure out that he only had sex with his wife once, That and that's when he had his kids, no, right? he had sex with his wife, and then he only had sex with... I... That whole scene was really fascinating to me on a reread, but, like, he came... After the children were born, she had postpartum depression, and he went to her... To like, oh, that's right. And she just like lay there, and he was like, he and she, and it's explicit in the text that she she did not refuse him. She did not say no. And then, but then he got sick. He like took himself off to like the water closet and threw up because he was so disgusted Mm -hmm. by himself. And like, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of 
this is a hard book. There's a lot of, I, I was just thinking like, gosh, we didn't trigger warning at all at the beginning of this episode. And maybe you guys could at the beginning of this episode, just to say like, there's yeah. so much discussion of like a lot of stuff that happens to people in this book. Yeah. That actually, I think, was a controversial scene for a few of our fans when they knew that we were going to read this book. I think it was assault. And I think like, but I think it's assault in the way that uh, it's so tricky because like at the time, like thinking about all the ways that, you know, it might have happened. But I think like ultimately at the end of it, like he felt really horrible about it. Like that he did something wrong. Yeah, that it. He should not have done what he did, even though, like, in the moment, it seemed like this is, I guess, how it goes. Ugh. Yeah. Terrible. And heartbreaking. Mm. Like, just awful for everybody. And then the way, the sort of, the way that they talk about what Marina did, too, at the end is really interesting. And I know, like, I'm sure there are a lot of reader feelings about how that's managed, um, because it is told through the lens of like he's he's still angry that she you mm-hmm. know she didn't fight right but like there's never a moment where like I do think that there is a lot of sympathy toward Marina even you know I I think that is a complicated needle to thread. Well, the fact that it's she's dealing with postpartum in a time where that didn't exist. That's not even a term. No. She took to her and bed. He didn't, yeah, he just thought she didn't try. She gave up. She doesn't love me. All these things. Like, he had no, he didn't, he wasn't educated in that. No. I mean, and so that's what makes this stickier is that we're looking at it from a perspective of now. Sure. But even now, I mean, the reality is, is that a lot of women suffer postpartum in silence, right? Even now. Yes. A lot of people who have suicidal tendencies like suffer in silence and we don't talk about mental health near enough. And like, I think that's what is going on in this book. It's a commentary on like mental health and how we need to talk about it more and understand it better. Widowers, a man who loves can love again. Sure. Yeah. Uh, And then best friends to lovers romance. They were not best friends. That's a weird thing. A governess and teacher romance book series? No. No. And then raunchy historical romance novels? No. no. Not especially raunchy. Like like you were saying, uh, Sarah, it could have had a little bit more raunch for a guy that was so, like, wet, ready to explode. No, I did like that he had to, like, leave her in Sophie's office and go, like, take care of himself in the water closet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Big fan. <laughs> Big fan of that. <laughs> Just, just, in general. just in general. <laughs> That's, that makes it easier for everybody. <laughs> so in your next book, is there a hero taking care of himself in a water closet? There is not. There is not. It's, I'm not too yet. busy writing all your weird tropes, Clayton. <laughs> <laughs> Labyrinth. But there'll and be yeah, adult breastfeeding. Brunettes and adult breastfeeding. There is no adult breastfeeding in this book. Sorry, Clayton. You have to wait. That's fine. It's so hard to wedge in there. (laughs) The whole book has to be about that. Yeah, you got to write a kid book. And as we've established, I don't want to do that. Um, I mean, the way that it was done in um, uh, in Dreaming of You is also as an epilogue, which is, I think, the best place for adult breastfeeding. Yes. Because you don't have to spend any time with the child or anything like that. Right. 
Uh, shaving. Shaving's the other thing. Shaving. There is the shaving. shaving in this book, too. Yes. Wow. This really is a book for Clayton. Clayton. I'm doing it. I'm doing it for you. All for you. Wow. <laughs> That's so great. Never say I didn't I didn't give you anything. I've, I've been saying that for so long, but now yeah. I have to stop. <laughs> Sarah's never written a book specifically for you. <laughs> never written anything for you. Should we, we'll skip over our tropes and do you want to just go to Swoons or do you, or Clayton, what do you think? Oh, well, let's see. What, what, what's, let's ask Sarah. Sarah, did you do tropes? Um, well, epistolary love story. I mean, like mm-hmm. love stories with letters. Uh, I had this as Beauty and the Beast. I can see it. Um, and then, yeah, that's it. Those are the two that I had. Clayton, what are your tropes? Bad father. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bad father. Sure. Hero with a bad father but or hero as bad father. <laughs> hero has bad father. So I don't think he's a bad father. I think he had a bad father, definitely. Yes. I mean, yes. Um, I would say, you know, uh, close family because the brothers do show up in mass and do a cost fill up. Um, Which is such a great scene. I don't think we spent any time on really it. But fun. like I when they all show up, it, I do get giddy and I love it so much. Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. Bad nanny slash nurse, because mm-hmm. she bad. Yeah, she's like she played <laughs> uh, by Sarah Paulson in the in the. That's such a good red. casting. <laughs> yeah, that nurse she should Edwards, be played yeah. by Sarah Paulson in the Bridgerton series. Erin, did you have any that we missed? Um, so my tropes were epistolatory romance, heroes, children, awful children, forks pro- forced proximity since they're forced to be in that house together. Oh, yeah. Com- yeah, compromise, botanist hero, heroine saves the day. Uh, the whole internal struggle of like, we're married, but my spouse doesn't love me. It's just the angst that I love. And so there's a touch of that in this as well, which is a great. Um, yeah, and those are my tropes. Uh, so yeah, Sarah, do you have anything that you're swooning about right now? Ted Lasso? Have we talked about Ted Lasso? No, I, swooned about, I swooned about Ted Lasso. <sighs> I love it. It's, so it's perfect. It's really delightful. And then this week it came out that Olivia Wilde and Jason Sudeikis broke up at the beginning of the year. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, my God, he was working through some stuff when he was writing mm, yes. that, that season. Um, yeah. Yeah. But also, I did you read the um, – Clayton, did you read the piece about the guy who plays Roy Kent who, like – is a writer on the show, and when they were doing, when we were in, they were starting to cast, he sent an email like in the middle of the night to Jason Sudeikis and some of the other producers saying, "Like, I would really like to be considered for the part of Roy Kent, but if that's a terrible idea, let's just pretend I never sent this email." <laughs> I, that's a hundred percent something I would do. I love that. <laughs> and like, I did not read I that, will but send it he to you. is it's so sweet. He's he so, is great. Oh, he's perfect. It's such a good show. I mean, talk talk about a show that with not a ton, like, there is the external conflict of, like, they are a bad team and they need to be a better team. Yeah. It's not particularly exciting, necessarily, but that is a show truly about the characters and also just about good people trying Mm -hmm. to do the right thing. There isn't a villain, necessarily. I think in the pilot, you think it could be the owner. She certainly doesn't become a villain. She's Um, so complex. Like, she's a I know, gift. It's fantastic. First of all, she's an older, like, she's not that old, but, like, she's a woman in her 40s on television. A beautiful yeah. woman in her 40s on television and not, like, sexless. And also just, like, she's so complicated. Like, she's, 
you totally understand her motivations. You understand like her conflict. Oh, it's so good. There's we've lived for so many years since I believe like the Sopranos in 2000 Mm -hmm. where lead characters, especially male lead characters need to have some sort of toxicity to them. It feels like, you know, the Breaking Bad, all these things that we can point sure. towards. Yeah. And Ted Lasso is is the is it shows you that you can write a compelling male lead character who is caring, is positive, and is strong in a way that isn't aggressive. This is also showing that Jason Sudeikis has like an impressive range. Like, yes, I thought that the pilot episode, you're like, is this just going to be like kind of jokey? And then it really gets thoughtful and emotional. Yeah, I I cried several times during this show. Um, All right, Clayton, what has you swooning this week? Okay, so this is a total rarity for me. I am swooning about a food item. Ooh. And as you guys all know, I'm a weirdo when it comes to food. So this is such a rarity for me. But I am swooning about these things called evolved nut butter cups. There's cashew butter. There's almond butter. There's um, there's uh, coconut butter. And these cups are like, there's only like five ingredients. They're not super sweet. And these are like the perfect amount of sugar. And they use like coconut sugar instead of uh, cane sugar. The problem is there's another version of these cups that they make. And they're the Kato cups. And they taste like trash. (laughs) The regular Evolved ones are so tasty. They're not super sugary. And they're a nice treat to have for somebody who tries to stay away from like treats and like sugar yeah so some with like gi buy, issues you know yeah right? buy the evolved nut butter cups but stay away from the kato version they're like black and blue and white packaging the other ones look like regular candy that those look like medicine and they <laughs> taste like medicine do not eat those so i'm swooning <laughs> but also warning you <laughs> swoon and a warn yeah um, a swoon and a scold because <laughs> Evolved, you got to up the game with your Kato cups. They really, they have a horrible aftertaste because I think they use something in those to keep them uh, Kato friendly where the regular ones aren't Kato friendly. So they're better. But Aaron, what are you swooning about? I am swooning, of course, about a TV show because all I want to ever do is watch TV and read books. But, you know, um, we've already talked about the books. I am swooning about The Crown. So I'm like a latecomer to The Crown because I am an anti-monarchist and I can't stand those people. <laughs> and then I, a friend of mine said, oh, this is like they're not like complimentary towards him. So it's like, mm, now I this this could be something I get behind. And um. I'm obsessed with Olivia Coleman, so I watched the third season, then I went back and watched one and two, and now we have four, which is famous for being the Diana season. Uh, also, uh, Lord Mountbatten is assassinated in the first episode. So I spoiler. think... Spoiler. Uh, spoiler from spoiler 1979. from history. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> I think. Hey, uh, I'm an American. We need spoilers for this. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's killed by the IRA, but you know, so I, uh, but it's just really well done. Uh, Maggie Thatcher is also this, like, so talk about another person I can't stand, but I think, um, Jillian Anderson is playing her in a really interesting way and is characterizing her in a really interesting way that I think is quite true to life. Um, and it's just obviously just like really well done and really well written and really interesting. Um, so if you are like me and you thought, I don't like these people, I don't want to watch them. No, watch it because it also shows how silly the monarchy is. And um, I think it's like as the time goes on, it's showing more and more sort of like how disconnected they are. Any last words, Sarah, or anything you want to plug no. or just I mean, faded Philip. states? <laughs> Justice for Wait, when is this episode coming out? This weekend? This week? Th- Wednesday. This week, yeah, Wednesday. Okay, uh, yeah, Saturday uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. If you feel like trying to flip Georgia blue, join us for phone banking. We're phone banking with Stacey Abrams' group, Fair Fight, uh, in Georgia to turn the Senate blue. Um, you can listen to Faded Mates, my podcast, also on Wednesdays. Um, I write books, too. But I haven't done that recently. <laughs> so. Well, you have Naughty Brits, which is a really I fun do. anthology. It's your first uh, contemporary, which is really exciting. Yeah, I wrote a and um, yeah, it's a fun it's a fun anthology with um, Sophie Jordan and uh, Sierra Simone and Louisa Edwards. For those of you who um, Louisa wrote a while back as both Lisa Edwards and Lily Everett, and then took some time off, and now she's back. So that's exciting. And uh, if you like contemporary romances with hot British dudes um, at, you know, the British Museum, this will be for you. Yes. Nice. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Erin, where can they find us? Yeah. So... Uh, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. It's how people find us. We really appreciate it. If you want to send us your hot takes on the British monarchy, uh, agreeing with or not agreeing with us, things you want to recommend, anything, we're at Learning the Tropes Podcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Learning Tropes, Instagram at Learning the Tropes. We have our Facebook group, The Learning the Tropes Troop. We have merch, which is in our show notes. So click there. Christmas is coming. Holidays are coming. You know, we sell sweatshirts. It's getting cold. Um, next week, we are reading Francesca's book, When He Was Wicked by, of course, Julia Quinn. Who else? Um, and then finally, Learning the Tropes is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you love at frolic.media backslash podcast. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. bye. So there is this big paranormal series. I don't know. You guys don't read paranormal very much on the podcast, but um, we haven't connected with any yet. Yeah. Well, back in the day, J.R. Ward wrote us. Well, she is still writing it, but like J.R. Ward's Black Dagger Brotherhood was like the cornerstone paranormal series for a long time. And the way that that was set up was there were these sort of big, bad alpha vampire dudes who were all in a brotherhood and they all like lived in the same house in like Buffalo and like fought <laughs> and fought, you know, the bad guys. <clears throat> and in Buffalo. In Buffalo like I know the Buffalo, Buffalo thing is Yeah. I'm just vampires with an upstate New York accent <laughs> is what I'm excited about. Well, it's just so cold and snowy and they're all wearing like Buffalo well, Bill starter it's jackets. It's very dark in the winter, which is helpful for vampires, oh. I think. 
Um, but yeah, oh, okay. that's true. There's no discussion of football at all in these books, though. And it might not be oh. Buffalo. It's somewhere upstate. Doesn't matter. Albany. Okay. It's probably not Albany. Albany's not as sexy as Buffalo. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what a weird distinction. All right. That's the quote of the episode already. <laughs> Albany is not as sexy as Buffalo. 